All right, if y'all would open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Uh, if you don't have a copy of a Bible, we have several Bibles around here. So if you need one, uh, just kind of nudge the person next to you and ask if they can pass you one of those. Um, ooh, I think I know what's going to happen with this uh, music stand. <laughs> like, like what happened last semester. <laughs> um, Luke chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to look at tonight, uh, we're going to look at the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, Many of you have read this parable, you've heard this parable, but I can tell you that there's far more to this parable than you've ever imagined. Um, I've preached from this parable maybe... Maybe six times, uh, numerous Bible studies from it. I get something new every time. And I told our leadership team earlier today that I had to kind of change up how far I was going to preach into this because I, I think it's worthy of spending uh, about two or three weeks on it. It is that amazing. Uh, Luke 15 will be in verses 1 through 3, and then I'm going to skip to verses 11, and I'm going to read all the way through 24. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Now what Jesus is about to do, he's about to tell two parables about two lost things being found. And now here's the third parable. Verse 11, And he said, There's a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and he felt compassion. And he ran, and he embraced him, and he kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we are asking that you would show us wonderful things that are in your word. And this, this text, ever since it came out of the, the lips of Jesus, it has saved so many people. And it has sanctified and changed so many people. Would you do it again tonight? Would you speak to us tonight from the power of your word by the power of the Spirit? And would you show us who you are? And would you call us from death to life? We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. There's a news story several years ago which says this. Four men set off from Florida's Gulf Coast on a weekend fishing trip. They were anchored about 70 miles from land, and their 21-foot boat flipped over because of the 15-foot seas and 30-mile-per-hour winds. Uh, 15-foot seas is nuts, by the way. It's a huge storm. But this article says, but these aren't your usual fishermen. Two of the boaters played in the NFL. The other two were former college players. But in the choppy seas, they, they managed to don life vests on them, and they tried to right the boat, but they failed. Their only choice was to cling to the hull of the boat and hope for rescue. After searching thousands of miles of ocean, the Coast Guard finally arrives 46 hours later. But they found only one man, Nick Schuyler, sitting on the top of the overturned boat. Three others, including... And Oakland Raiders linebacker Marquise Cooper and Detroit Lions free agent Corey Smith, they were missing and presumed dead. The sole survivor said this, that after a few hours after capsizing, one of the boaters apparently freaked out, removed his life vest, and let the waves sweep him away. A few hours later, the second boater started throwing punches in the air and took off his vest and dove into the ocean, never to be seen again. And sometime the following day, the third man, presumably this man named William Beakley, he believed he had seen land in the distance and he removed his life jacket and he tried to swim for help. I remember when that came out. That was crazy. That was actually in the middle of me playing college football. And what was scary about that was that when I thought I was at my strongest, I realized that I'm really far more weak than I could realize. It's a horrible and haunting thing to be lost, isn't it? But yet it's a very joyous thing to be found. But the question is this. How do you become found by God? Because what the Bible tells us is that without Jesus Christ, all of you are like these boaters out at sea and you're lost. But are you found? Have you been found? Or will you even be found tonight? How do you become found by God? This is the most important question in all of life. Your professor's been asking you a lot of questions, maybe already on tests, homework, whatever it is. This is the most important question in your life. What does it mean to be found by God? As mentioned earlier, the the two previous parables Jesus tells in this context are two lost things, one a sheep, one a coin, and being found. So now Jesus is going to tell a third one. And what Jesus is trying to paint the picture here is this. God loves to find what's lost. 
God loves, as it were, to find those who are hiding. He loves to seek them out. Jesus is telling us, he's telling us this story that we can say, if we believe in him, we can say with John Newton, I was lost, but now am found. Go back to verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners, a.k.a. lost people, they were all drawing near to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. They were saying, this guy eats with sinners, and he befriends them. Eating with people like this was a great sign of fellowship, which would have been a big no-no in the Pharisees' eyes. But it's helpful as we go on to understand who are the tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees. Well, the tax collectors were essentially this. They were Jewish people who had collaborated with the Roman Empire, and they were going to be hired by the Roman Empire to tax the Jewish people. But they said this. The Roman Empire said, look, we just want our cut. You can do anything else after that. So oftentimes what these people would do is they wouldn't just give the Roman Empire their cut of the tax, but they would ask even more so they could just hoard money for themselves. Tax collectors were seen as the ultimate betrayers of the Jewish people. But then you also had the sinners. It's not just saying that these people were sinful. We know that's true. But it's saying that this was their society label. When you thought, what is sin? You thought of those people. And those are the people who are drawing near to hear Jesus. They're the lost people. But what about the Pharisees and the scribes? Who are the Pharisees? To summarize it for you, here's essentially how the Pharisee party, this political religious party, formed. <clears throat> During the time of the 400 years of silence between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament, there were some of these Jewish political religious parties that would form, and the goal was this. How can we make our people good boys and good girls so that God would have favor upon us and restore to us the days of David? Do y'all remember last week when I was talking about how Jesus, Jesus talking about the kingdom of God and how that would remind the people of Israel about the kingdom that David used to have with Israel? They wanted the glory days back. But the tax collectors and sinners, at least in the eyes of the Pharisees, the tax collectors and sinners were, to them, they were the reason why God hasn't come back. They hated them. Jesus, if he's... Any sort of a righteous person wouldn't dare hang around these people. But the thing about the Pharisees is that they actually need to also realize that they too are lost. There was a man who became lost for 24 hours while he was hiking on Colorado's highest mountain. Interestingly, he ignored repeated phone calls from rescue teams. Why? Because it came from an unknown number. You see, we often ignore God's calls, don't we? But we ignore God's calls because we don't really think we're lost. And we think we're fine where we are. Jesus is seeking out the lost people, and at least the tax collectors and sinners, they know that they're lost. And that's why Jesus is going to tell this parable that God actually loves to find that which is lost. So go to verse 11. The younger son... Uh, excuse me, uh, uh, the father, there's a man who had two sons, and verse 12, the younger of the, uh, the son said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. The younger son, that's essentially who we are. 
We are often the younger son, and we have this very rude request, this offensive request of God. You see, ask yourselves the question, when do you get your parents' inheritance? When they die. What is the younger son saying to his father? He's saying this, you are already dead to me, so let's just live that way. I don't really care about you, I just want your stuff. There's actually a, a story in the ancient times, uh, maybe uh, I think somewhat around these times, I forgot, I forgot to look up the date, but there's a story of a man who had three sons and one of them wanted to take his share of the property immediately and move to a foreign country. Sounds very familiar. But the father, what he did upon the son's request, he took back the son's inheritance and he kicked the son out into a foreign country and didn't give him anything. The Pharisees and the scribes, when they hear Jesus uh, describing the story, they would have thought, this younger son's about to get it. Jesus is about to whip him into shape. You see, we need to realize about our own hearts, sometimes we love cancel culture until we get canceled. We love to see other people, you know, those people who really go out on the strip at night. We love to see it when God really brings hard times in their life, but we don't really like it when it happens to us. What is sin? Sin is spiritual adultery. Sin is divorcing from God to indulge in other lovers. We see this actually in Hosea chapter 4 verse 12 when God says through the prophet Hosea, my people inquire of a piece of wood, talking about the idols that they formed. My people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staffs give them oracles. Listen to this. Here's how he describes their sin of worshiping other things in God. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. The brutal, honest truth of what it means to be lost is that you and I, without Jesus Christ, are spiritual whores. You might be cringing at that, but the Bible says that that is true of you even when you don't say it's true of you. See, essentially what we do is like the hookup culture today, here's what we do with God. We say, God, I want your stuff, but I don't really want you. Like the hookup culture, we say, I just want to use your body for my own satisfaction, but I don't really care about knowing you. What's fascinating is that who brought this younger son into existence? The Father, who brought you and me into existence? The Father. Who has provided for the Son his whole life? Gave him everything that he had? The Father. Breathe in. Breathe out. Where did that breath come from? When have you ever had anything that you had on your own. But yet, as Romans one twenty one says, even though God has shown us who He is and everyone knows that there is a God out there, but yet we have not honored Him as God. How do we, 
How do we trade God for God's stuff? How do we commit the spiritual act of whoredom, as it were? See, oftentimes we can use Christianity just so that we can have status in the community. We love to parade what we've done on our resumes, but not really actually live the Christian life. We often can use the church merely as a place for social or work connections. We can also indulge in sexual activity outside of God's plan for marriage. We can hoard riches and money that God has actually graciously allowed us to enter into and we never give any back. We often obsess over having any success, but we'll never thank God for it. We demand from God healthy bodies, but we won't worship Him. But we can also do this in ministry because we'll pray for ministry success, and then when things go well, we say, man, am I awesome. In what ways do you want God's stuff more than God? Without Jesus, my friends, you are lost. Without Jesus, you are a sinner. That's what it means to be lost. And what we do, like this younger son, we believe the seduction of sin and we give into it because we think it'll give us something in return, but we forget the severity of sin. You see, what are we, when we're the younger son, what are we wanting? Here's what we're wanting. We're wanting our own kingdom. We're wanting better joy as if God can't give us that. We want a different identity. We don't want God's rules and we'll believe these false promises. We're like Adam and Eve in the garden when Satan approached them and said, look, if you just take this fruit, you'll be like God. But do you realize that God had already made them like him because he made them in his image? Everything you are looking for that you think will satisfy you is actually only going to be found in Jesus Christ. That's what makes sin so seductive. Because it makes you think, just one more look, just one more taste, just one more act, and then you'll have it. But what you're looking for is only going to be found in Jesus. Sin is just, it's crazy. It's absurd. To run away from the all-sufficient God who has given us everything. And that's what makes it so horrible. It's not just that the deeds in themselves are bad and God's just saying, you know, that was not a good job, right? often joke with Knox. um, Instead of saying, like, you're doing a good job, I love to kind of mess around and say, you're being a good job, uh, which is not grammatically correct, by the way. Uh, I'm from Alabama, so we can do that. Um, But God's not looking at you essentially and saying, oh, now you better be a good job. The problem with your sin is that you and I have rejected him. It says that the younger son, when he went out, what does it say in verse 13? Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, no doubt selling the property just to get the money. He takes a journey into a far country. Here's what that would mean. In this context with the Jewish people, when the son would go into a far country, he's not just moving like from here to Philly or here to L.A. He's leaving the covenant community. He is saying, I don't want anything else to do with your God. Can't you just see the Pharisees and the scribes saying, 
Jesus is going to get this sucker right. He's going to tell him, you better start being a good job. He doesn't want anything to do with this God anymore. He says, I'm out of here. I don't want to do this, uh, this whole Christianity thing. Y'all are a bunch of hypocrites. I'm done with this. I'm done with religion. And maybe you're almost there. Maybe you are there. Maybe you have no idea why you're even here right now because that's where you've been. <laughs> the younger son takes all he has and it says he squandered his property in reckless living. You see, actually, the son was not in this culture. He was not legally allowed to sell the inheritance that the, that the uh, father had given him. See, he hasn't just broken his father's heart, and he hasn't just embarrassed his family and his community. He has badly broken the law. Jesus is intentionally painting the picture that this guy is as far off as you can imagine. When you think about a sinner, you would think about this. When he uses this language in the Greek, these verbs are not saying that it was just a one-time decision. Like he just, ah, just, he just had a bad day and he just made one decision and ah, that really hurt. This was his lifestyle. See, this is what we have to remember about our sin, about being lost. This isn't just like something we do every now and then. This is who we are. He squanders it in reckless living. He didn't have any moral or ethical restraints. He said, I will live however I feel in that moment. And ain't nobody going to tell me no. He spent everything, literally meaning he had nothing left the entirety of a very rich father, by the way. He spent everything. Imagine Jeff Bezos spending everything. We actually have a hint of how wild of a life he lived. Look at verse 30. Verse 30, the older son is complaining to his father, and he says, but when this son of yours, talking about his younger brother, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. Doesn't it fit the picture of Hosea that he's not just committing spiritual adultery, but he's actually committing physical adultery. And adultery is sin. Sleeping around is sin. Indulging in pornography and lustful image is sin. And you might say, well, it's just one more look. It's not that bad. But you don't realize that one more look might kill you. It's treating your body, which is supposed to be the temple of God, but we treat it like it's a prostitution ring. Sending sexually promiscuous texts and pictures. Even just failing to promote biblical, healthy sexuality. Or also this. How often some of the TV shows we watch and some of the most popular ones out there that are on Netflix and HBO and name it, what else? And we watch those and there are sex scenes over and over and over and over in those. Would you sit on the couch and just watch someone have sex right there and think that's okay? This is what we do. This was my story before the Lord found me. Some of us are like St. Augustine before he was converted and we 
we're thinking about Christianity and we'll say things like this, Lord, grant me chastity, grant me sexual restraint, but not yet. God, make me a strong Christian, but after my time of having fun in college. But what you don't realize is that sin has such a powerful effect that it continues to harden and deaden our heart. That becoming alive is not actually up to you, it's up to God. Spiritual adultery, like this younger son, it puts us in the gutter. It makes us unclean and we are unfit to be in God's presence. You might be saying, but I'm not that bad. This is hyperbole. What if I told my wife this after seven years of marriage? Hey, I never actually really loved you. That would be, y'all would be like, that's awful. That's what you and I say to God. We don't really love you. We just want your stuff. See, God doesn't always reveal to us all of our sin at once. So with us saying I'm not that bad is actually not really us not being that bad, but actually us not seeing how bad we are. The badness of sin is actually seen in the goodness of God. And when we say we're not that bad, it's actually... Once again, saying we don't understand how good God is. But when we say things like we're not that bad, would we dare to point God to the cross and say, what you did there to your son, I don't really need that. Because that's what we're saying. Saying I'm not that bad is a sign of our hardness of heart and our spiritual numbness. It's like bragging about not feeling your toes when you have frostbite. Sin has a blinding effect. You might be saying, this is one of those fire and brimstone sermons. The guys on the, you know, Preacher Cindy or whatever her name is, or Preacher Bob. I called Sarah earlier because I wanted to make sure this illustration was right. There we go. There's my, there's my Sarah shout out right there. Um, and I was asking her a question about working out. And what happens, you know, when you work out, how do you get stronger? How do you get bigger? When you work out, your muscles break down. It's almost as if they're like micro tears. And when you rest, you heal and grow stronger. My friends, if you're going to grow in the Christian faith, you need to let God's word cut into your heart to show you what's really there. Because if you don't see your sin, you will not be amazed at Jesus who saves you from your sins. Because when Paul says in Romans 5 that sin has increased, he says, but grace has abounded all the more. My friends, you and I are sinners. We are lost, but Jesus has come to find sinners. Jesus is greater than all of your sins, than all of our sins combined in this room. He's come to save you. He's come to find you. If we're going to understand this, and if we're going to have a joyful response with John Newton and say, I was lost, but now I'm found, we have to realize we are sinners. And it does hurt. But we're not just sinners. We're also dead. Look at verse 14. 
To be lost doesn't mean just to be a sinner. To be lost means to be dead. Verse 14 says, And when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went out, and he hired himself out to one of those citizens in that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. The word famine there is often used in Scripture. And famine, I think we had talked about this a little bit last week. Remember, the blessing of God was seen in the rain clouds that would rain upon us to give us what we needed in its season. Famine in Scripture is used as a sign of God's wrath. He withholds His blessing. When Jesus is saying right here that a severe famine arose in that country, no doubt the Pharisees and scribes are saying, here we go. (laughs) This guy's going to learn today, right? The famine represents deadness. It's interesting here because the son had already looked at his father and says, look, you're basically dead to me, so let's live like that. And the father voluntarily enters into that death. Death is a big theme in this parable. And here it is again, the famine. Now, here's what is so interesting. Do you notice that the famine around the sun is the circumstances that makes him want to go back home? Here's what often happens in our lives. God will bring about difficult external circumstances so that we will realize that our hearts inwardly are worse than we thought. He will often make us feel some sort of a famine on the outside so we will realize the reality of the famine on the inside. Ephesians 2.1 tells us that without Jesus Christ, it's not that you're a sinner who just needs a little help. It's not that you just need a little religion in your life. You are spiritually dead before God. There is no life in you. That's what it means to be lost. So what Jesus is often giving sight to the blind. He's making the lame walk. He's letting the mute speak. He's letting the, the people who can't hear to hear So by the text I read earlier about the dry bones, they had no power in and of themselves, but God has to do it. That's the point of this text. Jesus is telling you that this son, who is us, by the way, has no ability in himself to come to God. Someone from the outside has to work in that person to make him come. See, we don't just need a little bit of help. We're dead. In the Antarctic summer of 1908 to 1909, Sir Ernest Shackleton, it's a great name, um, and three of his companions attempted to travel to the South Pole from their winter quarters. They set off with four ponies to help carry the load. But weeks later, their ponies were dead. Their rations were all but exhausted. They had turned back toward their base. Their goal was not accomplished Altogether, they had walked for 127 days. On the return journey, as Shackleton records in his his book, The Heart of the Antarctic, the time was spent talking about food, elaborate feasts, gourmet delights, sumptuous menus, and as they staggered along, suffering from dysentery, not knowing whether they would survive, every waking hour was occupied with the thoughts of eating. That's what this son feels. He is in such a bad condition that he just wants food. 
it's actually interesting. He still doesn't really want the father. He wants just his father's stuff still. There still needs to be work. When it says he's longing, it means that he had an epic desire. And actually in famine, this is actually really fascinating when I studied this, that you would only eat pig pods in extreme famines. And that's where this son is. Let me ask you a question. Do Jewish people, if I can just put it this way, do Jewish people like bacon? No, pigs are unclean. In the Old Testament, pigs were considered unclean. So the, the Pharisees and the scribes, what they're hearing is that this guy's not just the worst of the worst, but he's now unclean. What would it mean if you were unclean? You're cut off from God. They're licking their chops and they're like, this guy's about to get it. Don't worry, we're going to get to the Pharisees. This guy was so messed up, no one would give him anything, not even pity food. One person says a normal ancient story might have ended here with an obvious moral for listeners to not disrespect and abandon your father or else you might end up like this. You better be a good job, right? Isn't this often what we hear from American Christianity today? You better, as I keep saying, you better be a good job. You just need to feel really bad and just stay feeling really bad. And when you go on a long enough streak about just feeling really bad, you can start to feel good about feeling really bad. And you better be better. <laughs> because it's all about fixing your life up. Isn't that what all, even just the modern theories and all that today, just in our culture, like, it's just all the same thing. Be better. Moral of the story, boom, that's a wrap. But that's not how it ends. It says he came to himself. Look at verse 17. It means that it was the smelling salts of his conscience that woke him up. He realized that he is desperate. Guys, let me remind you, sometimes God loves you so much that he allows you to hit rock, hit rock bottom so that you'll know it. He had to do that in my life numerous times. If he loves you, he'll do it in your life. One of the worst things that can happen in your life is that you never come to yourself. But some of us, just we just want a comfortable life and we don't want to think about those thoughts. We're on our bed at night and we're just trying to fall asleep. We don't want to think about how bad we are. But one of the best things that can happen to you in your life is that you come to yourself. Is that you realize that you're actually lost. That you're actually dead. See, my friends... What if you're in that season of life right now? And what if God is about to do something awesome in your life? One author named Brennan Manning says this, Sooner or later we are confronted with the painful truth of our inadequacy and our insufficiency. What Jesus is trying to tell everyone who is an earshot of him telling this, he's trying to say, you need to realize this about yourself. You are lost. And he is speaking this to you right now from his word. That without him right now where you sit, you are lost no matter how much you try to forget about that. You see, but something we need to realize, as I've already mentioned here, is this, is that 
When it says in verse 17 that the son came to himself, that's not the fullness of what repentance is. It is certainly nothing less than that. But even the devil knows he has sinned and he is not repentant. There are many times in your life where you might realize, oh, I've realized what I've done, but you're really regretting the consequences of what you've done, but you haven't run to Jesus Christ for mercy. You see, repentance is far more than this. It's certainly nothing less. So he develops this plan. You see it there, right? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to earn my way back. I'm going to say, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I know I've sinned. So let me do this. Let me pay you back. I'll be a hired servant. By the way, the, the way it worked in the culture then would be you would have the family and then you would have the household slaves who would have, you know, they would live in the house with the family and they'd have all these rights. They just wouldn't be a blood member of the family. And then you would have the hired servants who would literally just be the day laborers. The son is saying, look, don't even make me a household slave. Just hire me for daily work. I'll earn my way back. And isn't that what we try to do with God every day? I'll do better. I'll go on a long enough streak without sinning to sin. I'll be better. But my friends, with spiritual adultery, you will never be better on your own. You never will. There's a story yet again in the news of a mom on strike. A mom was fed up with her family and she put signs in the yard that said mom on strike. And so the news channels came because obviously that sounds very interesting. And they found out that the mom had moved out of the house into a tree house in the backyard. The news, news people, they interviewed the husband and they said, and the husband said this, you know, I have the kids doing their chores again, and I've told them to be to be cool to, to cool it with their sarcasm. We're trying to make amends with mom and do whatever we can to get her to come down. But my friends, there's nothing you can ever do to get God to come down to you. You cannot earn it. The desperate state of our condition of being lost is that we cannot get God to come to us. He must on his own come to us the son has just a ridiculous plan he did not cause himself to be born he did not cause himself to be formed in his mother's womb but yet he's trying to do whatever he can to impress his father and we do the same thing with god but you can't See, our approach to the Christian life is often like the classic story with a plumber who looked at the Niagara Falls and he said, I can fix this. The Niagara Falls is your sin. The sun is your sin. And we're often say, we look at the sun and we say, I can make that go away. That sounds crazy because it is, but we do that all, every day. We do that when we come into this room by acting like we have it all together. See, trying to keep God's law is like trying to guess a perfect March Madness bracket, and it's never going to happen even if you choose the best mascot. By the way, it's even harder than that. It's impossible. But if you're going to understand what it means to be found, you need to know what it means to be lost. And what it means to be lost means that you're dead. But my friends, we have an answer. 
Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That is where we are going. That is actually the purpose of hell. I'm sorry I said that word. I know I'm going to get canceled. Please forgive me. But that's the reality of where it is. But actually, there's a second part of Romans 6.23. It doesn't just say that the wages of sin is death. It says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus Christ has come to save us from death. Jesus Christ has come to find you. Amen? Amen. John 1.4 says that in Jesus was life. What makes life, life to the fullest quality, eternally joyous is in Jesus. You say, how can I get this life? It's because the life came down amongst us. Jesus says in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Stop acting like you have it all together because you don't. You're just a tax collector and sinner. But Jesus has come to save you. Jesus has come to save lost people. He says again in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. My friends, what happened on the cross? The God of life took on death. The Creator, He took on flesh and He breathed His last breath. The God who is perfectly holy took on flesh and He went to the cross and He was treated as if there was no holiness in Him. He was treated like He was lost, like He was a sinner, like He was dead. And He did it so He could save dead and lost people. That's why Jesus will say in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you want life? Get Jesus. Jesus will say in John 15, verse 4 through 5, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Life. Life is in Jesus Christ. How can you be found? Jesus finds you. What's amazing is this, is that we must be born again. We're dead in our sins. And that's what happens when you become a Christian. Like Ezekiel 37, when the Spirit breathes life into those dry bones, so the Holy Spirit comes to you and me. He comes to all of God's people. And He breathes spiritual life into you. And you stand up and you live. You see, there's a reason why I keep a cane in my office. Because this time last year, I was really working through recovering from this thing called Guillain-Barre, that is uh, some, somewhat similar to like uh, ALS or MS. My body was breaking down very fast and I was realizing that I'm not in control. 
why do I keep that cane in my office? I keep that cane in my office because that reminds me of what I'm really like without Jesus. I don't have any power. But I also keep that cane in my office because that was a season of life where Jesus came to me. And that's what happens to us. Amen? Amen. Jesus is saying, you don't just confess that you need a little bit of help. You confess that you're dead and that you need life in his name. It's not saying, sorry, I'll do better. It's not saying, sorry, I need to make myself forgivable. It's not saying, well, that wasn't really me. I'm not really sure what happened. No, 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 my friend, that is you. There's no negotiation with this. God comes to you in all of his mercy and his grace. He raises you up. Why is that amazing? Because if he gives it to you when you don't deserve it, then when you live the Christian life and you sin again, he will not take it away. Amen? He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. He's come to find dead people and make them alive. Two men from the Pacific nation of Kiribati They were lost at sea for a month. They had managed not only to survive, but to unravel a 50-year family mystery. The two men made headlines late uh, when this article was written late last month when they had washed ashore in the Marshall Islands after 33 days lost at sea. They had traveled more than 600 kilometers from their home. Their global satellite positioning system had run out of batteries and After they had left their island, it should have been only an 80-kilometer trip to get gas. It was 600. Finally, the men stumbled upon the Namdrick Island where they were able to find much-needed food and water, but that's when they also discovered this 50-year-old family mystery. Nearly 50 years earlier in the late 1950s or early 1960s, the uncle of these two men also got lost at sea. Can't make this up. And when these guys in the present, when they met the people on this island, they discovered that their uncle had washed ashore that same island. But he didn't just wash ashore and find food and water because there's no way of getting back. That was his home. He married, he had kids, and these guys are realizing they're meeting some of their relatives in that moment. That is crazy. My friends, you and I are lost without Jesus Christ. But when he finds you, he brings you home. He doesn't just feed you, but he brings you into his family. And that's what happened to the son. Amen. Do you want to come home? Believe in Jesus Christ. You will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we're asking that by your mercy, you would bring us home. We don't even know the way back. We ignore your calls. Breathe spiritual life within us. Do whatever it takes, please. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.